Hi there, everyone. Andy Roberts here. You've tuned into the Nasty Pasty podcast, the show which discusses a whole slew of horror films from 1960 to 1990 in relation to the quintessentially British scourge of video nasties. These were, in essence, a list of films that were available on VHS that the British authorities, in tandem with the police and conservative voices, wished to ban from public distribution because of their extreme violence and supposed obscenity. After the flames were fanned by linking the films to countless crimes in the newspapers, nightmare pictures of their interactions with children on the news, and Mary Whitehouse proceeding to dub anyone who didn't agree as an evil pervert, eventually the hand of the police was forced into action by the Director of Public Prosecutions, who published a list of the offending films. This was then given to officers, who'd then embark on raids of retailers and distributors suspected of carrying the obscene films. People were fined, jailed, had their property seized, and their livelihoods destroyed, eventually culminating in the Video Recordings Act 1984, which stipulated that every video in the country now had to be certified and appropriately censored for public exhibition. It's been that way ever since, leading to a whole host of films being unavailable legally here, or older ones that are released being censored or otherwise. As the actual video nasty films have been done to the death in terms of reviews, I decided to demonstrate how silly the whole shambles was by looking at similar films which are available at the same time as the nasties, but they escaped any negative attention despite being just as bad. Consistency was never an issue for the conservative crowd back in the day, as these films that I cover often highlight. This week we're taking a look at the theme of Supernatural Girls, which is pretty similar to our 42nd episode where we covered Cursed Children. Young girls and supernatural powers kind of go hand in hand now, becoming almost synonymous with each other, though that arguably may have been cemented by one of the films that we're covering today. Today's duo of debauchment includes William Friedkin's The Exorcist from 1973 and Lucio Fulci's Manhattan Baby from 1982. And yes, Lucio Fulci again, folks, but sadly, it's the last time that we'll be covering The Godfather of Gore, so let's hope that it's a highlight. Almost everyone has heard of The Exorcist as well at this stage, even if you haven't seen it, so let's soldier right on and cover William Friedkin's demonic possession shocker, The Exorcist.
In Iraq, a priest called Father Merin attends the scene of an archaeological dig, which unearths several artefacts. One of them is a demonic head statue, which greatly concerns him, enough to trigger a premature departure. Returning to the site, he realises that the small head resembles that of a much larger statue, a wind demon called Pazuzu, which begins to ominously become wreathed by scouring winds. In the present day in Georgetown, Washington, D.C., actress Chris McNeil lives with her 11-year-old daughter, Reagan, filming scenes for a movie called Crash Course, directed by her colleague, Burke. On the set, a local priest called Father Karras briefly watches the scenes being filmed before heading on to his home. Back at home, Chris gets some mail from her assistant, Sharon, and asks Reagan about her day, only for her to playfully steal the mail from her and be chased by Chris. Karras returns home to his apartment and takes care of his mother, who's virtually housebound by both her age and her injuries. Back at the McNeil's, Chris finds a Ouija board which Reagan describes as having used all the time, conversing with someone that she calls Captain Howdy, and then the pair discuss Reagan's upcoming 12th birthday celebrations. The day is soured, however, when Reagan's father doesn't call her, and her sleep is then disturbed by a supposed shaking bed. Waking up to go to work, Chris hears strange noises in the attic, only to be frightened when her candle's flame suddenly bursts effervescently. Karras' mother is hospitalised due to her worsening condition, which she inadvertently blames on him even though it's her brother's decision, causing Karras to take out his frustrations out in the gym. At the McNeil's, Chris hosts a large party and invites a whole host of rich socialites, including Burke, an astronaut, and a priest called Father Dyer who tells Chris of Father Karras, who has by now lost his mother to her illness. Suddenly, Burke insults the waiter by calling him a Nazi, forcing Chris and Sharon to eject him from the house. With the party in much better spirits, Dyer begins to play a song on the piano, only for Reagan to come downstairs in a strange mood saying that the astronaut will die up in space before urinating on the carpet. When Chris puts her to bed, she is shocked when her bed begins to violently shake. Father Karras has fallen into a deep sadness, drinking himself into oblivion with Father Dyer, and having strange dreams of his mother wandering the streets of Washington. Meanwhile, Chris takes Reagan to the doctor, where she's incredibly resistant to the tests, spouting offensive profanities. Though the doctor initially diagnoses her with a lesion on her temporal lobe, explaining her rapid changes in her behaviour, Reagan undergoes further x-rays and scans and reveals that there is in fact nothing medically wrong. When she's returned home, her symptoms worsen, undergoing violent convulsions before speaking in a demonic voice and physically assaulting those around her, imploring them to fuck her. Returning to the hospital turns up no answers yet again, leading the doctors to recommend a psychiatrist for Reagan's treatment. One night when Burke is asked to look after Reagan by Sharon, Chris returns home and notices that Reagan's window is wide open. Closing it, she goes downstairs to the news that Burke has been killed, presumably tripping on the steps outside the house, when she and Sharon are suddenly shocked by Reagan descending the stairs backwards like a spider, dripping blood from her mouth. A psychiatrist tries to help Reagan by hypnotising her, only to be attacked by the other presence inside of Reagan, which attacks his genitals and pins him to the floor, while police officer Lieutenant Kinderman consults Karras about Burke's death, revealed to have been due to his head being twisted completely around, leading him to believe that some witchcraft or anti-church conspiracy is afoot. Chris is told that Reagan may be suffering from a delusion of possession, making an exorcism a viable alternative as it may put her delusions to rest. 
Kinderman finds the head of Pazuzu artefact at the scene of Burke's death, while Chris finds a crucifix underneath Reagan's pillow. Kinderman visits Chris shortly after, suggesting that Burke was pushed from Reagan's window, presumably by a powerful male, which frightens Chris as she begins to suspect that Reagan may be responsible. After Kinderman leaves, Reagan undergoes another attack, in which objects fly violently around the room, while she brutally masturbates with the crucifix. Trying to wrestle it from her hands, Chris is grabbed by the possessed Reagan and has her head forced into her groin before she's brutally slapped away. Finally, furniture begins to block the door and Reagan's head turns completely 180 degrees to insult Chris with profanity. Meeting with Father Karras, Chris implores him to help their situation as she's now desperate. Karras meets with the almost unrecognisable Reagan, who speaks now permanently in the demonic voice, who taunts him with the same begging that he heard on the subway earlier, as well as his mother's death before vomiting onto him. Still unsure of whether to proceed with an exorcism, Karras spends further time with Reagan, dousing her in holy water, which provokes her to speak backwards and scream violently. After explaining to Chris that it was actually merely tap water, Chris reveals that she believes Reagan to have killed Burke. Investigating Reagan's backward speech, Karras discovers that she spouted Father Merrin's name and is then invited back to the house by Sharon, who's discovered Reagan's room completely encased in a cold chill with the words, help me, embossed on her abdomen. Karras now believes that an exorcism is justified and is assigned Father Merrin, who returns from Iraq and arrives at the McNeil residence. The pair begin the ritual, despite Reagan's horrendous language and spitting foul fluid at them. It gets increasingly more violent as Reagan causes the bed to levitate, her own body to float, and the voice accusingly hisses at Karras for abandoning his mother. Sensing this weakness in Karras, Merrin suggests a short break before starting once more, but Karras goes in prematurely without him, only to hear his mother's voice and begin to react emotionally. Merrin insists that he carry on alone, dismissing Karras from the room. When a period of time has passed, Karras returns to the room and realises that Merrin has died of a heart attack. Reagan begins to laugh mockingly at the priest's death, causing Karras to go berserk with rage and attack her, punching her face and imploring the demon to take him instead. Without warning, Karras is suddenly possessed by Pazuzu and manages to resist attacking anyone, bravely throwing himself from the window and fatally striking the same steps that Burke perished on. As he lies dying, Dyer happens upon the scene and absolves him of his sins as Kinderman arrives at the house and witnesses the tragedy, with an upset Reagan seemingly back to normal. Several weeks later, Chris and Reagan are packing up to return to Los Angeles, when Dyer comes by to check on them. Explaining that Reagan cannot remember anything of her ordeal, the family leave by car, just as Dyer runs into Kinderman, who's now investigating Karras's death. When I touch your forehead... Open your eyes. Are you comfortable, Reagan? Yes. How old are you? Twelve. Is there someone inside you? Sometimes. Who is it? I don't know. Is it Captain Howdy? I don't know. If I ask him to tell me, will you let him answer? No. Why not? I'm afraid. If he talks to me, 
I think he'll leave you. Do you want him to leave you? Yes. I'm speaking to the person inside of Reagan now. If you are there, you two are hypnotized. and must answer all my questions. Come forward. And answer me now. It's almost completely impossible to give a good critique of The Exorcist. Not because it's a bad film by any means. In fact, it's nigh on flawless as classic horror goes, and it was as groundbreaking as it was influential. Now, it's very difficult because this film has been reviewed and discussed to the nth degree, and it's entered the annals of horror as both a significant piece of cinema and the harbinger of a new era of horror. The Exorcist is essentially a supernatural horror film, based on the 1971 novel of the same name by American writer William Peter Blatty. The film by William Friedkin is a fairly faithful adaptation, which focuses on Reagan McNeil, a young 12-year-old girl who becomes the subject of unexplained disturbances which culminate seemingly in a full-scale possession, requiring the intervention of two priests who each have their own demons to confront. Blatty actually based the book on a supposed real-life incident that occurred in 1949 in Cottage City, Maryland, involving a young boy called Roland Doe. In original reports and newspaper articles, the boy was dubbed Robbie Mannheim, but essentially it described a young boy of 14 years old who underwent a dramatic personality change accompanied by unexplained phenomena. His bed would shake uncontrollably, objects would fly of their own accord, and Roland himself would exhibit increasingly disturbing and violent behaviour, speaking in an unrecognisable tone, reacting viciously to anything holy, and even attacking a visitor with a mattress spring slashing their arm open. The child was subject to several exorcisms, the last one of which seemed to have worked, resulting in a relatively unremarkable life afterwards. Despite a large amount of scepticism today, which retrospectively assume that it was faked by the disturbed boy due to either mental illness or abuse, Blatty used this source material as the inspiration for his novel, changing the gender of the victim and exaggerating some of the details. There are a few slight differences between the film and the book, but not significantly. Some of the sexual themes were reduced, such as the infamous crucifix masturbation sequence, which was much more graphic in the book, detailing Reagan mutilating her genitals horrendously before even having an orgasm and suffering a broken nose during the incident. Another sexual aspect which is only hinted at in the film is that regarding Chris's director friend, Burke, who in the novel is much more obviously a sexual abuser of the young Reagan which explains his seemingly random act of being in the young girl's bedroom in the film. The book also elaborates on another more ambiguous issue in the film, like the moment when Reagan's head turns backwards. You know what she did? (laughs) Your canting daughter! Which is actually the demon admitting to Chris that Reagan has killed Burke, using the head twist to specifically reference Burke's demise. Other than this and some other minor differences, the film is actually quite faithful, which is most likely because Blatty himself wrote the screenplay, preferring to take an active part in the film's development. Principal photography on The Exorcist, however, was infamously troublesome, stretching an initial 85-day shoot into an arduous 224-day schedule. 
Plagued with multiple issues and problems, including the set burning down mysteriously, actors becoming gravely injured, and Friedkin's own difficult directing style, it all combined to make one of the most trying shooting schedules ever. Starting the shoot in August of 1972, the first scene to be shot was that of Father Karras pacing around the hospital with his uncle, after his mother's hospitalised. Paradoxically, the first scenes that we see in the film, of Nineveh in Hatra, Iraq, were actually the last to be filmed. Due to Iraq and the US having no formally recognised diplomatic relations, Freakin had to use an all-British crew after all the American scenes had been filmed, and to sweeten the deal, the crew agreed to teach Iraqi filmmakers some cinematic techniques to allow the shoot to continue in peace. The shoot was also continuously plagued with budget issues, which director William Friedkin mainly attributes to the breakdown of equipment during the shoot. The culprit was supposedly a $50,000 air conditioner used for the scenes of Reagan's bedroom undergoing a chill, which would frequently cease to function, requiring frequent repairs. This room, however, is just one of many special effects in the movie that it's now infamous for. The famous projectile vomit sequence is one of these, where Reagan regurgitates a foul green substance that hits Father Karras right in the face. Part of the reason that this scene is so effective is because the reaction from Karras is genuine. The apparatus was meant to squirt the vomit into the actor's chest, but it misfired quite badly and launched the substance into his face, which reportedly angered actor Jason Miller. The vomit itself was actually Anderson's branded pea soup, which was both thick enough to be realistic, and it even disgusted actress Linda Blair as she was quite averse to vegetables at the time. For a lot of the vomiting sequences, Reagan was played by Linda Blair's stunt double Eileen Dietz, who'd mocked her face up with fake cheeks made of plexiglass and run a stealthy tube that sat in her mouth, where the pea soup would shoot powerfully from. This complicated setup meant that the actress couldn't completely close her mouth or even swallow properly, hence why they utilised Dietz for the sequence. Linda Blair, anyway, was already too disturbed by the makeup that she was required to wear. So much so that she had a clause in her contract for the sequel, which stated that she didn't have to wear any makeup at all for the shoot. Another famous scene of the film involves Karras' death by tumbling down the steps outside Chris's home. The steep set contained no less than 75 steps, which were padded with thick rubber coverings to prevent any real injury. The scene was only shot twice using a stuntman, but there were so many spectators to view it that local university students began charging onlookers $5 to view it. In some versions of the film, namely the version you've never seen, there's a sequence where Reagan walks down the stairs in a disturbing spider-like manner, which was performed by Anne Miles. It was achieved with Miles' natural flexibility in combination with a harness and wires, which gently lowered her down as she hurriedly scrabbled down the stairs. It was removed from the theatrical version because there was no conceivable way to hide the wires from the footage, though they were instead digitally removed for the extended version released in the year 2000. Despite his aged appearance in the film, Father Merrin, or Max von Sydow, who played him, was a mere 44 years old during the filming, which required the crew to make him look considerably older. The procedure took a painstaking three hours, where they smeared his face in stipple before applying liquid latex, causing the rubber to ruffle and wrinkle as it dried. While this was pretty much pure suffering for von Sydow, he also fell off his perch when it came down to film the exorcism scene, as the foul language that Linda Blair had to utter towards him for the scene caught him off guard, causing him to flub his lines.
And speaking of latex, the small moment where the words help me appeared on the young Reagan's stomach was achieved using a latex mock-up of Blair's abdomen, which was then brushed with cleaning fluid, causing blisters to form on the material. After heating it up with a hairdryer, the protrusions sank back into normal position, and they simply reversed the footage for the final effect. As mentioned before, the effect of the character's breath being visible was achieved by effectively refrigerating the set by using up to four air conditioners at once. It grew so cold that layers of ice and frost would form on both the set itself between takes and even the actors whilst acting. Linda Blair suffered the worst as she was merely in a nightgown, leading to a complete aversion to being cold as an adult. The aforementioned crucifix masturbation scene also utilised Eileen Dietz, as they required someone with a bit more strength to perform the stunt. Ellen Burstyn, who played Chris, was set up with a harness that would jerk her away as Dietz slapped her. However, not all went according to plan, as the mechanism that jerked Burstyn was far more powerful than expected, as she landed on her coccyx and severely injured her spine, leading to her hospitalisation. Apart from the visual special effects, the film is also notable for the audio effects, which it actually won the Academy Award for. The moment of Reagan turning her head all the way around, for example, was achieved with a leather wallet being kneaded and twisted against a microphone. A bee in a jar was also utilised, with a speed oscillator used to vary the bee's pitch to a bizarre and disturbing level. Dogs howling and a woman's convulsions were used for some of Reagan's outbursts, while her disturbing sounds emitted during the exorcism itself were culled from a sound of pigs being slaughtered. Reagan's possessed voice was originally just Linda Blair's voice, which would be electronically lowered in pitch and tone to make it menacing and devilish. After some tests with the exorcism scene, however, Friedkin felt it didn't feel threatening enough, so he employed actress Mercedes McCainbridge to dub the voice of the demon instead. She insisted on making the voice as authentic and tormented as possible, deciding to swallow a load of raw eggs and smoking a whole bunch of cigarettes to create a raspy, unpleasant quality. Though she was a recovering alcoholic, McCainbridge even drank several shots of whiskey to give her a genuine crazed performance. Friedkin, however, decided to go even further than she'd suggested by binding her to a chair to get a realistic struggling quality to her rage. McCainbridge did indeed have one of the most memorable vocal performances that features in the film, but both she and Friedkin have mixed emotions about the experience after the fact, as Friedkin was genuinely terrified by her performance, whilst she felt incredibly bitter about the whole event. In fact, this was not the only instance of controversy that Friedkin would find himself in, as his drive for authentic reactions led to increasingly suspect methods. To get a shocked reaction from Jason Miller before one scene, Friedkin actually fired a gun just behind his ear without warning, leading to a vitriolic confrontation where Miller argued that he didn't need that to act surprised or shocked. It's even hinted that Ellen Burstyn's accident during the slapping scene were due to Friedkin's insistence on having the harness jerked quite violently to get a realistic reaction of pain. Even in the film's closing scenes, William O'Malley, who played Father Dyer, was physically slapped across the face by Friedkin before shooting Karras' death, leading to actual tears and his hands shaking to become obvious on the camera during the shoot. Not every approach to realism, however, was so wreathed in controversy. The film's depiction of medical procedures, namely an arteriogram and a pneumoencephalograph, have been lauded subsequently as some of the most realistically depicted procedures on film. 
The small detail of Merrin asking Chris for Reagan's middle name is a reference to exorcisms during the Middle Ages, where it was believed that the devil could not gain control over your soul if you had multiple names. Even the use of squealing pigs for Pazuzu being exorcised from Reagan is a conscious choice, relating to a part of the New Testament. In it, Jesus casts out several demons from a person, which are known as legion collectively, and then transfers them into a group of nearby pigs. To expel the legion, the people at the exorcism then drown the pigs, which is pretty much what happens to Carus, who commits suicide after accepting Pazuzu into his own body. Friedkin even asked the film's technical advisor, Reverend Birmingham, to exercise the set to give an authentic flavour to the production, though he ultimately refused and instead gave the cast and crew a blessing. Getting onto the actual film, however, this one raises a memory from my childhood and a vivid one at that. I must have been about 10 years old when my mum and dad bought The Exorcist on VHS, so I think it was the new version that came out in 2001. I'd always been given free reign of the video recorder to watch whatever I wanted, so I'd already devoured some of the Nightmare on Elm Streets, the Halloweens, and even Friday the 13th. One of my favourites as a kid was the Critters films, but I'd watched much more unsuitable stuff too, like Texas Chainsaw, Evil Dead, and even Species, which once raised concern from my mum, who threatened to hit my dad if I ended up getting nightmares. I never really did, but one day I remember noticing The Exorcist on the floor and asking to watch it. For the first time ever, my dad said no. I was too young to watch it. Being only a curious ten-year-old boy, I asked why, and he replied, The language. There's too much swearing in it, and it's not the same kind of swearing that you've heard. Many years later, I know exactly what he meant by that, but I still wish I'd experienced the film more as a gullible and scaredy-cat kid. As it happens, I hadn't seen the film properly until around 2014, and upon first impression, I actually didn't find it that great of a film. Unfortunately, a little bit like Friday the 13th and Night of the Living Dead, I was distanced from it in time and technique, as so many other dozens of similar possession movies had come out since, which had homaged it to the point of parody. Not only that, but the scary movie comedies had already been and gone as well, and a whole host of references and pop culture shows had spoilt most of the fun already. In the last few years, I've rewatched it many more times, and I've actually warmed to it quite a lot now. What was also against me was the whole controversy surrounding it, which gave me the impression that it was much more shocking and horrifying than I found it to be. Honestly, upon first watching it, I found it to be incredibly talky, with long stretches of inactivity, which would occasionally fire up in intensity, with pretty foul uses of language, obscenities, and supernatural happenings. My opinion of the film, however, now has definitely improved over time, and I can appreciate it for the true classic that it is. In terms of its shock factor, the language that's used in the film is probably one of the more prominent characteristics, so I do have to agree with my dad, really. It certainly raises eyebrows, more so because the obscene language is coming from such a young character. Reagan's potty mouth frequently spouts vulgarities like, and excuse my language here, shove it up your arse, you faggot, stick your cock up her arse, you motherfucking worthless cocksucker, and most infamously, your mother sucks cocks in hell. This leads into the more sexual-themed shocks of the film, with the aforementioned references to sodomy and homosexual acts being specifically used to mock the priest's religious faith, in which homosexuality is particularly frowned upon today and mercilessly persecuted in the past. Pazuzu's personality in voicing these attacks is very toxically masculine, by reducing the masculinity of the priest by suggesting that they're gay. 
In a more visceral attack, Pazuzu forces Chris's head into the groin of her daughter, aggressively beckoning her to lick me, lick me, fulfilling both the taboo of incest and lesbianism in one fell swoop. Part of Pazuzu's horrendous actions are to reduce Reagan to a mere sexual object, a possible reference to Reagan's recent transition into adolescence. This eventually culminates in the rather unsettling sequence where Reagan forcefully jams the crucifix into her genitals, enough to draw huge amounts of blood. Apart from heavily symbolising both menstruation and even the deflowering act of her hymen breaking, her screams of let Jesus fuck you renders the act as one of blasphemy, perverting the holy image of Christ into a sexual one. There's even misogynistic aspects such as inferring that your mother sucks dick amongst hellfire or referring to Reagan as a cunting daughter, which also predominantly reduces the female characters to mere sexual machines, identifying them only by genitals or their sexual acts. The aggressive and violently sexual nature of Pazuzu's possession is not only meant to shock and horrify the priests who must exorcise the being, but also the audience whose religious faith, if any, would probably be tested by some of the startling imagery contained within. Even to me, who's been battle-hardened by the likes of Cannibal Holocaust, a Serbian film, and even Human Centipede 2, some of these sequences were just a little uncomfy despite their age and their entry into popular culture. It also helps that the story and its characters are so well drawn. While you might be forgiven for thinking that the film is focused on the exorcist himself, it's so much more than that. While Reagan's possession is considered the main theme of the film, it still doesn't quite take centre stage as there's multiple plots going on at once. I mean, firstly, there's Chris and her relationship with Reagan, which is strained, but it's comfortable. Chris works hard as an actress and clearly loves her daughter more than anything, and struggles to make all the time she is with her memorable and heartwarming. Being so busy with her career, Chris employs a lot of home help to aid with Reagan's care, and throughout the first third of the film we see their relationship in quite a positive light. Notably, the only real time that we see Chris upset, before Reagan's possession anyway, is in regards to her father, who's not only absent from her life, but does not seem to care at all, leading to a frustrated Chris yelling at a phone operator when she cannot contact him. Yes? No, operator, don't tell me there's no answer. It's the Hotel Excelsior in Rome. Would you try it again, please, and let it ring? Hello? Yes? No, operator, I've given you the number four times. What do you do, take an illiteracy test to get that job for Christ's sakes? Don't tell me to be calm, goddammit! I've been on this fucking line for 20 minutes! This plot, of course, evolves into Chris's fear at what's happening to her daughter, as she begins to showcase the strange symptoms, and having no religious faith herself, begins to deteriorate personally as each medical test and procedure seems to turn up no answers. Then we have Father Karras, who undergoes a loss of faith after his elderly mother passes away. Not only that, but his uncle had Karras's mother transferred to a psychiatric hospital against his and her will, which leads to intense guilt on his behalf. The film sets up Karras' redemption through being able to finally help Reagan, while Pazuzu taunts him about his mother's demise. In the film's final act, Karras makes the ultimate sacrifice and commits suicide after forcefully transferring Pazuzu into himself, regaining his faith as he's read his last rites by his friend Father Dyer. Finally, there's the storyline of the actual exorcist, Father Merrin, who has seemingly encountered Pazuzu before, recognising the malevolence at the beginning of the film. 
As Reagan begins to shout Merrin's name even before he arrives, Merrin's story almost comes full circle as he finally confronts the entity that he's known for so long. In a strange twist of fate, however, it proves to be the death of him, leaving the way open for Karras' redemption. Despite being called The Exorcist, the titular character is given very little of the film's runtime, which goes to show just how varied and rich the film's plot actually is. While modern reviews and retrospective reviews are almost universally positive, the reaction from audiences and public figures at the time of release add to the mythos surrounding the movie. While the UK had its own reactions, which we'll get to later, the 1973 release of Friedkin's film is saturated with stories of audiences reacting with unprecedented levels of panic and mania. Frequently, there were reports of people screaming in terror, people becoming faint and dropping unconscious, people vomiting profusely in cinema toilets, becoming ill, miscarrying their babies, being taken away in ambulances, and even moviegoers running terrified from the theatre. The reactions were so extreme and in disturbingly large numbers that it became quite difficult to verify the sorts of stories that were coming through. Even the MPAA themselves came under fire for awarding the film an R rating instead of the expected X, simply because the head at the time, Aaron Stern, believed the film had some importance. Actress Ellen Burstyn herself witnessed several people faint during the scene of Reagan's arteriogram, including a woman near her who wobbled to the ground after getting up. After attending to her, Burstyn realised that if she regained consciousness and saw her, she would likely collapse into a further panic due to recognising her from the film, so she went and got help from some other audience members. One such moviegoer actually sued Warner Brothers as he'd fainted during the film and fell forwards out of his chair, breaking his jaw in several places, leading to an out-of-court settlement. Writer William Peter Blatty actually declared that the majority of the adverse reactions were due to the scenes of medical procedures rather than the supernatural goings-on that had caused them so much discomfort. The religious community also reacted harshly against the film, with evangelist Billy Graham stating his belief that demons had possessed the film reels, whilst actress Linda Blair was assigned security for six months after the film's release, as she received countless death threats from religious audience members who condemned her for portraying the devil. It wasn't all completely bad news, however, as The Exorcist was received almost universally positively by critics at the time, and it's one of a handful of horror films to be graced with Academy Award nominations and wins. It was nominated for 10 awards altogether and was the first horror film in history to be nominated for Best Picture, the only others being 2017's Get Out, Jaws, The Sixth Sense and The Silence of the Lambs. It actually won in two categories as well, for Best Screenplay and Best Sound Mixing, and as of 2010 it was even entered into the US National Film Registry for its cultural and aesthetic significance. By 2019, it's remained as one of the highest-grossing films in history, with current takings of around 441 million, and is certainly Warner Brothers' highest-grossing film in their whole repertoire. It even spawned several sequels, including The Exorcist 2, The Heretic, which unfortunately is described often as one of the worst movies ever made. I'll definitely be seeking that out then, if that's the case. It was then followed by The Exorcist 3, directed by William Peter Blatty himself, as well as two relatively recent prequels, Exorcist The Beginning and Dominion, prequel to The Exorcist. 
Most recently, in 2016 and 17, Fox also released a TV series of The Exorcist, following the events of the original film and ignoring the sequels altogether. All in all, the legacy of The Exorcist is very difficult to ignore, and while it virtually inspired and cemented the possessed girl trope and the subgenre, it's also an incredibly made, thoughtfully produced piece of horror that you'd really be a fool to miss out on. Don't be like me, just watch it as soon as you can. Chris was played by Oscar-winning actress Ellen Burstyn, who'd been in a whole wealth of films such as The Last Picture Show, Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, The Babysitter's Club, Requiem for a Dream, the remake of Wicker Man, and 2014's Interstellar. The Possessed Reagan was played by Linda Blair, whom we've spotted a long time ago when we covered Witchcraft, or Ghost House 2 as it was known. Blair became quite the cult film star after the film was released, reprising her role in The Exorcist II, The Heretic, appearing further in 1981's Hell Night, Savage Streets, the re-edit of Hell Prison and Hotel Paradise, which was 1985's Savage Island, and she even had a cameo in Wes Craven's Scream in 1996. Father Merrin was played by Swedish actor Max von Sydow, who reappeared in the same role in The Exorcist II, he also starred in 1979's Footloose, Flash Gordon as Emperor Ming, uh, Conan the Barbarian, David Lynch's Dune. He was the voice of Vigo in Ghostbusters 2, 1995's Judge Dredd, What Dreams May Come, Minority Report, Rush Hour 3, Shutter Island, Star Wars The Force Awakens. And he's even done some voice work in video games too, like Skyrim and Lego Star Wars. Lieutenant Kinderman was played by Lee J. Cobb, who'd been in movies since the 30s, mostly in westerns like The Tall Texan, Man of the West, Coogan's Bluff and McKenna's Gold. Kitty Wynn played the maid Sharon, who reprised the role for the unloved sequel The Exorcist to The Heretic, whilst Jack McGowan played the role of Burke. He'd been in a few things like Dr. Zhivago, Cul-de-sac and the 1971 version of King Lear. Jason Miller played Father Karras, who later popped up in The Devil's Advocate and the 1990 sequel The Exorcist 3. William O'Malley played Father Dyer and was actually a legitimate priest in real life, continuing in this profession today, whilst Barton Heyman played Dr. Klein, whom we've actually seen way back when when we first started Nasty Pasty, when we covered Let's Scare Jessica to Death. Peter Masterson, who played another of the Doctors, was in 1975's Stepford Wives, and he even wrote the screenplay for the Dolly Parton musical The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. And for a little piece of trivia, that previous film, the Dolly Parton musical, was actually accidentally seized during the video Nasty Scare when they assumed it, based on the title, to be a pornographic movie. Rudolf Schundler played the role of Carl, who was Chris's butler, and he'd later turn up in Dario Argento's Suspiria as Professor Milius. Yet another of the doctors in the film, Dr. Taney, was played by Robert Simmons, who's been sporadically in a number of cult films like Linda Lovelace for President, The Video Nasty Superstition, Chud 2, and even 2002's Catch Me If You Can. Finally, the demonic voice of Pazuzu was performed by Mercedes McCambridge, who was a veteran actress from US TV, who's even appeared in a few Jess Franco films herself, namely 99 Women and Justine. Director William Friedkin fell in love with movie making after seeing Citizen Kane from Orson Welles in the 40s, eventually leaving high school to join WGN TV to make documentaries. He ultimately moved to Hollywood in the 60s to make pictures, and the rest, as they say, is history. 
He's done a couple of other notable movies in his career as well, such as the 1980 Al Pacino film Cruising, which is a homage to Giallo films set against the backdrop of gay leather subculture, and also 2006's Bug, which is a psychological thriller about two mentally ill strangers who find their surroundings suddenly encroached upon by bugs. He's dabbled in other genres too, such as military dramas with 2000's Rules of Engagement and comedies with 1983's Deal of the Century. The film was written by The Exorcist novel's original writer, William Peter Blatty. He's had some further involvement with the film world as well, such as writing the script for 2004's Exorcist The Beginning, as well as writing and directing The Ninth Configuration, based on his novel Twinkle Twinkle Killer Kane. And he also did The Exorcist 3, based on his novel Legion. Producer Noel Marshall would later write, direct and star in the 1981 comedy film Raw, while David Solvin would return to produce Friedkin's comedy film Deal of the Century. The cinematography on the film was done by Brooklyn-born Owen Roisman, who worked on The French Connection before William Friedkin's project, and then he subsequently went on to The Taking of Pelham 123, The Stepford Wives, Sgt Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, Tootsie, The Adams Family, and even the music videos for Madonna's Gambler and Crazy For You. The film had two editors, one of which was Norman Gay, who'd later work on the 1977 zombie film Shockwaves. The other, Evan A. Lotman, worked on 1982's Sophie's Choice and 1986's Maximum Overdrive. The film's extensive special effects and makeup were done by a group as is usual. One of these was Dick Smith, who worked on The Godfather Part 1 and 2, The Stepford Wives, Taxi Driver, The Exorcist 2, The Heretic, The Deer Hunter, Altered States, The Video Nasty Scanners, Spasms, Starman, Poltergeist 3 and Death Becomes Her. Another crew member was Marcel Vercature, who worked on John Borman's Deliverance and Police Academy 6. And finally, there was the prominent Rick Baker, whom we mentioned before on our episodes with the man-eating Wormfest, Squirm, and David Cronenberg's Videodrome. As we've mentioned the US release in quite a bit of detail already, we'll simply talk about the UK release, which was released uncut in cinemas across the country. At the year of its release, the BBFC, who are now responsible for certifying everything that we watch, were only advisory back in those days, so local councils actually had the right to overshadow their decision and ban a film from a specific town. And this was actually enforced with certain showings of The Exorcist. So while all cinemas offered the film, not all of them were legally licensed to show the film. So in that instance, bus services were provided for audiences so that they could travel to the nearest town where the film could legally be shown, known colloquially as Exorcist Bus Trips. While nowhere near as crazy, though, was America's reaction, the film nonetheless made waves across the country and gained notoriety for its blasphemous content and vulgar scenes. It eventually received an uncut release from Warner Brothers in 1981 on VHS, which would have been right in the middle of the video nasty hullabaloo. It's something, though, that I've never understood due to the reaction that the film got later, but The Exorcist was never listed as a nasty despite its high notoriety and was never even seized as a potential victim. It's even more strange because Warner Home Video had also released Friday the 13th, which the DPP had seized as a nasty under the Section 3 argument. So they seemingly had no qualms going after such a major mega-company. My only thought is that someone in the upper echelons of government, or even the DPP himself, had already seen the film and dismissed its inclusion because of the film's quality. 
Other than that, I'm absolutely at a loss as to why this film wasn't considered obscene by video nasty standards. It's certainly quite graphic and is much more of a disturbing experience than, for example, I Miss You Hugs and Kisses, or even Blood Feast, which were actually DPP video nasties themselves. Anyhow, as usual, the Video Recordings Act came into effect in 1985, forcing all the uncertified tapes to be resubmitted and released legitimately. This is where the story gets interesting, as James Furman, the head of the BBFC, took a personal dislike to the film and refused to pass the film in any way. Citing the effect that the film may have had on young girls, Furman continually rejected certifying the film, but doing so by continually delaying it. Furman even once contacted Warner directly to request that their producers not to submit the film as he wouldn't allow it to be passed. Furman also perpetrated this treatment against Sam Peckinpah's Straw Dogs and Toby Hooper's Texas Chainsaw Massacre, meaning that these three films were legally unavailable and nominally banned because of Furman's personal vendetta against them. In 1988, Warner decided to submit the film anyway, only to be brushed off by Furman, who cited recent cases of child abuse as a reason not to consider the film for release. It was only in 1999 that the film was finally passed uncut, along with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Straw Dogs, simply because James Furman had actually retired as the chief censor, finally allowing the film on UK shores for the first time since 1981. In 2001, Warner Brothers then released the version you've never seen, which is a director's cut with some of the removed scenes now re-edited in, and the film has now enjoyed many releases in the country since, without any issues whatsoever. Phew, that was a long one, eh? Now that The Exorcist is done with, let's wake all of you up and move on to the next supernatural girl this week in Lucio Fulci's Manhattan Baby. In Egypt, a professor called George Hacker collects a scorpion for his inquisitive daughter Susie, while her journalist mother Emily snaps photos in front of the pyramids and sphinx statues. Moving to a plaza, Susie is left alone briefly, only to encounter a strange blind old woman who gifts her with a bizarre talisman before dissolving into thin air. After George's team unearths a giant engraved sockle, he identifies it as connected to another tomb in the area, which he decides to explore. Finding a snake mechanism in the wall, George opens a secret passage but is suddenly attacked by a cobra, which his companion shoots dead. 
After entering the newly opened chamber, George's companion is killed when he falls onto some spikes, while George survives to spot a symbol on the wall which begins to glow with energy, striking him in the eyes and blinding him. Emily struggles to find Susie after returning, while George stumbles blindly out of the tomb. Eventually getting back together, the family return home to America, where George is told that his blindness seems temporary, while Susie plays with her brother Tommy, watched by their nanny, Jamie Lee, who notices Susie's amulet. While George finds it hard to return to normal life, Emily returns to her news office with her colleague Luke and begins writing about her experiences in Egypt. Susie soon begins to act strangely, such as being able to predict an inexplicable storm that night and spotting the strange symbol at night, which frightens her and causes her to faint. The next day, Tommy and Susie are playing in their room when suddenly a portal appears in place of their bedroom door, causing them to scream. George rushes upstairs to find them, but the kids have disappeared completely, leaving a message on their mirror which reads, Daddy, help me. As George leaves, he's struck with the strange energy again, partially restoring his sight. By the time he awakens, the kids have returned with their explanation and are in Jamie Lee's care, where they play hide-and-seek. George, meanwhile, seeks out the help of a colleague called Wyler, who identifies the symbol, predating the Egyptians as one of pure, utter evil. Back at the house, Jamie Lee is unable to find the children during their game, and suddenly the lights go out, panicking her. When she hears the children in their room but is unable to gain access, she is suddenly stalked by a cobra which appears and runs off to telephone the building's security man who enters the elevator. When the bedroom door finally opens and a masked figure comes out, Jamie Lee is relieved when it turns out just to be Tommy, while the security guard is trapped inside the elevator when it goes haywire. Painfully trying to prise the door open with his bare hands, he's killed when the floor gives out and drops him down the shaft. Returning home with Luke, Emily finds that the children are safe and sound, but when Luke goes up to check the room, he's suddenly spirited away in a flash of light. Investigating his screams, Emily finds the bedroom is absurdly sprinkled with a layer of sand and scorpions, while Jamie Lee is disturbed at her reflection turning into the Sockle from Egypt. Luke is revealed to have been teleported to an endless Egyptian desert, where he dies from the heat and dehydration. The next day, Jamie Lee takes the kids to a park and snaps some pictures of Susie, only for them to show the talisman only. A woman picks up this picture and contacts a man called Marcato, who instantly recognises the symbol. The next day, the woman gives the photo to Emily as she walks by the building, which she submits to George's friend Wyler to take a look at. She also explains to George that the sand in the bedroom was found to be Egyptian after analysis, only for the pair to be interrupted by the shouts of Tommy. When they look around, they cannot find the kids at all, only for them to appear again suddenly. When questions about their whereabouts, and also those of Jamie Lee, they explain that she hasn't returned from her voyage yet. In his office, Wyler investigates the photo, only to be fatally bitten by a cobra that inexplicably appears near him, causing the photo to vanish. At the same time, Susie suffers a night terror and suddenly has the photograph clutched in her hands. Tommy explains more about these voyages and that there are rules, showing George a small statue of Anubis that he's picked up from the Egyptian dimension. Tracking down Marcato, he explains that the stone in the talisman represents evil and suggesting that Susie has begun absorbing this evil. 
Tracking the talisman down, they're surprised when Susie reappears bathed in blue light, clutching a handful of sand and a scorpion before collapsing. When Mercato comes to examine her, he's struck by pain and begins babbling in Susie's voice, foaming and bleeding at the mouth. When he's recovered, he confirms that Susie has been possessed by the stone and is now a conduit for its evil powers, showing George a vision of the endless desert that the children have been visiting in their voyages. When Susie's condition worsens, they take her to hospital where the doctors are shocked to find a snake-shaped shadow on her x-rays. Back at home, Tommy is left alone when he suddenly finds a wall becoming doused in blood, only for it to suddenly burst open and Jamie Lee's rotten hand to burst forth before dying. Mercato, now in possession of the amulet, becomes encircled in its power as Susie appears to recover in the hospital. When George returns to Mercato, he is reassured that Susie is now saved as he's taken the curse himself, but he implores George to dispose of the amulet. After George leaves with the talisman, Marcato becomes aware of a presence in his apartment, only for a bunch of his taxidermied birds to come to life and brutally peck him to death. The next morning, George drops the talisman into the river, ending the danger once and for all. As the film ends, the old blind woman in Egypt gifts the amulet to another young girl, starting the cycle all over again. It's safe to say that any film following The Exorcist on a double bill would possibly struggle to compete with the former film's technical and cinematic prowess. But in actual fact, Manhattan Baby would likely be overshadowed by lesser films, as it's a much more somnolent affair than the audience would expect from Lucio Fulci. He, of course, is well regarded by modern horror fans for his frequent focus on eyes, fragrantly enigmatic narratives, picturesque locations, and more importantly, extreme gore, which liberally peppers his most successful works, like Zombie Flesh Eaters and his Gates of Hell trilogy. 
But unfortunately for us, Manhattan Baby seems to purposely forget the multiple instances of extreme gore, deciding to showcase instead Fulci's other cinematic techniques in favour of a more subtle psychological experience. It's not that it doesn't work as a Fulci film, as it's just as confusing and strange as you'd expect, but the reduced levels of violence are kind of unexpected in this era of Fulci's filmography, so one of the more exciting elements is almost absent entirely. Still, while it won't win any awards anytime soon, there is enough Fulci madness going on to make it a worthwhile watch for me, and if anything, it's a change of pace and direction amongst the Lovecraftian, zombie-stuffed nasties that Fulci was knocking out during the early 80s. The film started life as a script by husband and wife couple Dardano Sacchetti and Elisa Briganti, then entitled L'Occhio de Male, which roughly translates as The Evil Eye. The themes and plot were an attempt to do something outside of the accepted traditions of classic horror, with less emphasis on gothic tropes and more of a modern take involving technology. In essence, however, the film is noticeably a hodgepodge of various other films done in Fulci's signature style. First and foremost, it's very similar to The Exorcist, which we've just covered. The action starts similarly in a desert environment, swapping the ancient Iraqi city of Nineveh for the pyramids of Egypt, a sequence that Sacchetti says was added in after the initial scenes in New York were written to give the film an international connotation. The plot then focuses on an entity, supposedly named Habnubnanor, who possesses main girl Susie through means of an amulet. Supernatural happenings occur, leading Susie's parents to eventually hospitalise her to find out what the problem is, only for her to be saved by a good Samaritan, Marcato, who takes the evil into himself and is killed as a result. In terms of objective data, the narrative is pretty much the exorcist in a nutshell, simply with all of the explicit sexual and blasphemous details removed. Other influences are also a bit obvious, like Toby Hooper's Poltergeist, which was released just a few months before Fulci's film. The focus on the little girl touched by supernatural forces, the family dynamic of having a brother, mother and father with the au pair, which mirrors Toby Hooper's setup somewhat, and the images of portals appearing in places of the children's bedroom doors all correlate with the 1982 classic. There's also 1980's The Awakening, which has a very similar plot of a professor's daughter becoming possessed by the long-dead spirit of an Egyptian queen, which was based on Bram Stoker's novel The Jewel of Seven Stars. While mummies are not usually Fulci's forte, the blending of Bram Stoker's material makes that subject more likely to crop up, and it certainly has that Egyptian mummy aesthetic running through it as well. There was even a conscious effort by the writers to link the film tangentially to Roman Polanski's Rosemary's Baby by including a character called Adrian Marcato and retitling the film to Manhattan Baby midway through the shoot. A major snag hit the budget though when the producers withdrew around three quarters of the budget, leaving a mere $300,000 to use, considerably less than what Fulci was expecting. As a result, a lot of the original script's effects were toned down, removed completely, or substituted for optical effects. The finished film is admittedly a little south of what most people would expect from Fulci. Quite similar to The Sweet House of Horrors that he'd released much later, the film is a slight change of tactics by Fulci to do something different, and this is a breath of fresh air in some ways. It's just too bad that there's nothing particularly striking about the film to generate much excitement, with possibly the exception of one major sequence of gore. 
It feels more akin to something like Jess Franco's Oasis of the Zombies, which is much more slumber-inducing than its horror subject matter implies. What does come across, though, is precisely how familiar the film feels. If you watch a lot of Fulci, or even just his most famous examples, there's so many snippings and nostalgic throwbacks to his other movies that it feels more purposeful than the otherwise languid screenplay would suggest. Christopher Connolly and Laura Lenzi bear very similar aesthetic looks to Christopher George and Catriona McCall, who were in Fulci's City of the Living Dead, whilst Giovanni Fretzer from House by the Cemetery turns up again as the kid in this one. The mum character is named Emily, very similar to the Beyond, and the same blinded eyes effect that was used in that film is used here as well on the mysterious Gypsy Woman. Both Marcato and the au pair are portrayed by characters from Fulci's nasty New York Ripper, the latter of which is reminiscent of the strange Anne from House by the Cemetery. Even Marcato's death by vicious birds is staged quite similarly to the bat attack in House by the Cemetery, with a very lengthy terrorisation of the victim, and even lizard in a woman's skin really, which we covered only last week. It's almost like a fevered dream of a lot of the elements from his previous cache of horror films, blended in an Egyptian canopic jar with added eyeballs. In a particularly knowing reference, Tommy asks his sister if mummies are scarier than zombies, which virtually saturated Fulci's most popular films, and even the score is interspersed with famous pieces from both The Beyond and City of the Living Dead. Narratively, though, the film is pretty much a mess. The talisman or amulet which causes the trouble has no discernible or explained origin, other than the enigmatic blind woman who gifts it to young Susie. And even then she quite literally evaporates into the Egyptian breeze, with no answers to proffer at all. The extent of the powers is also left in the dark, with varying levels of menace hinted at and occasionally brought to life. It's able to, for example, give some brief precognition powers to Susie, cause random portals to appear which lead to an endless expanse of mystical desert, Stargate style, I might add. It blinds people arbitrarily, can give them their sight back, affect the fabric of reality somewhat, and even cause dead bird carcasses to spring back to life to kill. While it doesn't focus on Susie as much as Pazuzu did in The Exorcist, for example, she is still negatively affected by the powers, and seems to be used merely as an energy source for the formless evil to wreak havoc on the world that it has access to. It's both a blessing and a curse, really, that the malevolence in Manhattan Baby has no visible or understandable form. Having no on-screen antagonist can be frustrating, as was the case with Byron Quisenberry's Scream, rendering a lot of the film's menacing sequences a bit boring and trying to push through. On the other hand, the film's outright refusal to explain the nature of the evil does keep us constantly unaware of what to expect next, as it can seemingly affect anything it chooses to. A constant theme, or should I say power of the amulet though, is that of the fabric of reality fraying and becoming fluidly defined. The film overall is rather illusory and phantasmagorical at times, with quite loosely established reality that can seem to change in just a second. Events that would usually be bizarre in a lucid reality are virtually ignored here, such as Luke completely disappearing, which is brushed off as a mere prank, or the scene of a random woman giving Emily a photograph despite never meeting before, which is never really thought about except to dismiss it casually. Reflections in mirrors show Egyptian sockles, portals appear in the middle of the kids' bedrooms, walls bleed profusely before birthing the dead body, sand inexplicably appearing in an apartment, 
and the whole menagerie of animals like scorpions, serpents and birds behaving bizarrely frantic and unnaturally. It's no coincidence that one of the film's most prominent tones is blue. In both the dark nighttime shots, the jeweled lapis lazuli of the strange talisman and the ethereal blue light that it emits at times. Blue was considered representative of creation and the universe in Egyptian culture, and this is where some of the strongest subtext of the film seems to come from. The Hackers family have almost been sucked into a version of reality that is constantly ebbing away, breaking down in logic, stability and safety. Frequently we're shown billowing sands and the steady flow of sand from Susie's hands, as well as what appears to be a sinkhole or an hourglass type effect where the sand is disappearing into an unknown abyss. This unsettling flow of time and space seems to represent the slow but sure decay of the world around them, which is only punctuated occasionally by moments of danger. It's almost the cinematic equivalent of drinking sips of strong coffee after taking sleeping tablets. The whole affair is certainly a sleepy trial to endure, but the reliable hits of caffeine are always kicking in every so often, just to ensure that the nightmarish vision continues forever. The film's large emphasis on eyes is also quite indicative of the movie's theme of reality, and what appears to be real suddenly becoming less so. It even ends on quite a cyclical tone, similar to Umberto Lenzi's Nightmare City, where the amulet is employed once more to ensure another series of destruction, signified by the old blind woman giving the artefact to another unsuspecting little girl. It's nigh impossible, though, to deny that the film isn't easy work. The characters feel merely like pawns in a rather surrealist experimental theatre troupe, reacting in implausible ways towards disturbing events. Some of the traditional Italian dubbing and scripting, of course, gives it some of the charm that you'd expect from this sort of film. And it's funny how comforting that can be to hear familiar dub actors almost as though they were old friends. Even the film's moments of violence don't really redeem it in any way. A moment in the beginning has one of George's assistants fall straight into a bed of spikes, a security guy falls to his death when the floor of the elevator appears, an analyst is fanged by a poisonous cobra, and in the goriest moment of the film, Marcato is pecked to death by his rejuvenated taxidermied birds in quite an entertaining sequence. It's much less gory, though, than some of his previous works, so gorehounds will likely not appreciate this entry as much as the other delights that Fulci has devised. An especially odd moment, though, is the small scene of animal cruelty involving a cobra being shot dead for real, which is present even in the modern UK release. This is probably the most visceral moment, as it comes from nowhere and is very noticeably real. Even after the film was released, writers Sacchetti and Briganti were less than impressed with the finished print, branding it very poor, while Fulci himself dubbed it a terrible movie. He was so bitter towards the film that his relationship with longtime collaborator Fabrizio De Angelis broke down as the producer was seemingly more eager about the project than Fulci was. I think ultimately, though, Manhattan Baby kind of teeters equally on a pivot, and it can swing in both directions depending on what you feel like. If you're in the mood for gore, more visceral horrors, or even a more coherent narrative, you probably won't enjoy the gelid tone and the laboured feel of the film. But on the other hand, if you want something a bit more ethereal and soporific, with some visual flourishes and a slower pace, you'd probably find enough interest here to enjoy. It's certainly one of the more different entries in Fulci's filmography, and considering some of the really bad films that I've covered on the show, 
I really can't bring myself to lump this one in amongst the likes of Scream or Panic. Christopher Connolly played the blinded and recovered George, who'd been in a few bits and bobs here and there, like Bronx Warriors, Atlantis Interceptors, and 1987's Strike Commando. Tommy was played by Giovanni Frezza, who's recognisable from Fulci's video nasty House by the Cemetery, as well as Warriors of the Wasteland, A Blade in the Dark, and Demons. Jamie Lee was played by actress Cinzia DuPonte, whom we briefly saw in Lucio Fulci's nasty New York Ripper as the first victim. Another familiar face from New York Ripper is Cosimo Sinieri, who played the mysterious Marcato. He also cropped up in Warriors of the Year 2072 and also Murder Rock. Another frequent face on the nasty pasty is that of Carlo De Mejo, who played the jokester Luke. We've seen him in Terror Express and City of the Living Dead, but he also starred in two of the video nasties, House by the Cemetery and Contamination. Also from New York Ripper and City of the Living Dead was Martin Sorrentino, who has the small role of the security guy who's killed in the elevator. But that's about it though for the cast, there's not many recurring faces that were used in this entry. The same can't be said, though, of the crew, and as mentioned last week, we're not going to be saying anything about Fulci any longer, as he's too far frequent a visitor. I'd go so far as to say that Fulci has been on the nasty pasty more than almost any other. The film was written by married duo Elisa Briganti and Dardano Sacchetti, one of Fulci's favourite combos. They collaborated on Hands of Steel, which we've covered before, as well as the video nasties House by the Cemetery and Zombie Flesh Eaters. Independently, Briganti has worked on stuff like A Blade in the Dark, Bronx Warriors and Exterminators of the Year 3000. Sacchetti's copybook is much more expensive, working on Cut and Run, Massacre in Dinosaur Valley, The Cynic, The Rat and the Fist and Cat and Nine Tales, all of which we've covered before. Another familiar name is that of producer Fabrizio De Angelis, whom we've seen before on New York Ripper and Ratman, while the rather familiar music was both reused and new compositions from Fabio Fritzi, the guy who did the legendary score of Zombie Flesh Eaters. We've of course heard his dulcet tones on stuff like City of the Living Dead, Contraband and Pieces. Fulci's ever-reliable editor Vincenzo Tomassi also returns on this production, whilst assistant director Roberto Giandalia has also been mentioned when we covered New York Ripper, Contraband and City of the Living Dead. The only crew member that I can see who hasn't been mentioned on previous episodes is that of the cinematographer, Giulielmo Mancori, who's worked on The Fourth Victim, Yellow Emmanuel, Sister Emmanuel, Ring of Darkness, Wild Beasts and the Mondo film from 1984, Naked and Cruel. The film's initial release was in August of 1982, and it was almost instantly forgotten about due to its confusing narrative, lack of Fulci's signature gore, and generally lacklustre reception from critics. Retrospective reviews have been better towards the film, but it does rather remain as one of Fulci's lesser-loved movies. It did have a UK release on VHS back during the days of the nasties, released as Possessed from Entertainment in Video in 1983. It was an uncut release, and it possibly may have gotten attention too, based on the fact that Fulci was already well known by the DPP for his legitimate nasty releases, and the distributor was already on a watch list for releasing the nasties Parasite and Rosemary's Killer, aka The Prowler. 
It's also hard to envision, though, such a slow film to have been fingered as potentially obscene. But as the equally somnolent experience of Oasis of the Zombies was seized, we can't exactly be too sceptical. After the Video Recordings Act was enforced in 1985, the entertainment in video release was actually one of the few to be submitted to the BBFC right away, and it passed uncut at Certificate 18 in 1986. This means it's also one of the few to emerge after the Nasties saga pretty much untouched. It remained available in this format until 2005, when Shameless Films released the film in a cleaned-up version on DVD. So it's available now if you do want to seek it out. it's all over yes you've made it you've reached the end well done you quite a lengthy one this week but i thoroughly enjoyed covering the two examples this week nasty pasty will of course return next time but first loads of thanks to everyone who listens subscribes and retweets comments likes interacts in any way you're all fabulous and i hope you enjoy the show as it is if you've got any comments anecdotes or any feedback on the films that i've covered or i will cover then do get in touch For the next two weeks on Nasty Pasty, though, we'll be taking a break from conventional horror films and focusing on another subset of violent action films. The next fortnight will focus on post-apocalyptic action films, which were quite prominent in America, Australia and Europe in the wake of successes like Mad Max. Next week's entries will be Bronx Warriors from Enzo G. Castellari, and 2019 After the Fall of New York, from director Sergio Martino. Until then, however, try not to venture into any dodgy deserts and touch any arcane artefacts. You really don't want dead babysitters and foul vomit to ruin your day. Farewell! Farewell!